Robert Kennedy once visited the Amazon and was uh, just was talking to a Brazilian Indian through a translator. And this Kennedy did not know this, but this Indian had just come to Christ. And he asked this Indian, well, what do you most like to do with your day? Thinking, hunting with bows and arrows and canoeing and fishing and things like that would be what the Indian would say. To his shock, the Indian responded, my favorite part of the day is when I am occupied with God. Kennedy looked at his translator and said, ask him again, that's not right. Something is lost in the translation. But the Indian gave the same answer. I love being occupied with God. I love that definition for worship. For we are occupied with God when we worship. And our worship needs to be proper. It needs to be centered upon Jesus Christ. It needs to be flowing right from Scripture. As I've said to you many times, what Calvary Bible Church does, we, we strive to do from Scripture. Your elders, we, we discuss these things, and there are things that have been suggested to us that we will not do, not because they are wrong or bad, but because Scripture has a better way. And so here on our services, we desire to lead you into worship that occupies you with God. We are looking, continue to look at the care of Moses in Stephen's sermon. Remember, Stephen is continuing to preach to the Sanhedrin, that he's not believing something that is off. He, he holds the same confession about Moses that they hold. And remember, he focuses so much on Moses because the Pharisees especially claimed that Moses was their teacher. And they followed in his footsteps. And so he continues even more with Moses in verses 37 to 43. And he then turns to look at the prophet that Moses, Moses spoke of in verse 37, uh, when he said, This is the Moses who said to the children of Israel, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren, and him you shall hear. That was our scripture reading this morning. And Moses is not talking of himself. He's not talking of just another man. He is talking about the Messiah whom God would raise up. We know him as Jesus Christ. And Stephen, as he closes his sermon, he begins to direct the Sanhedrin towards the conclusion he needs them to make. The, the person for them to, con- to concern themselves with is not Stephen. It's Jesus. And they need to see that Jesus is the one who has the right to command them and how they worship and where they worship. Moses is the prophet that points to the Messiah. And if you think of what Moses did, he served as a priest and a prophet. We we say Jesus Christ is our prophet, priest, and king. There were men in the Old Testament who held the office of prophet or the office, office of priest or the office of king, but not one of them held all three. Only Jesus holds all three. Moses held prophet and priest. And he led the the Israelites through the wilderness as the prophet, directing them as God commanded. This is a direct quote here. This prophet will come. He'll be like me, but you're going to hear him, and you need to listen to what he says. It's a direct quote from from Deuteronomy 18.15. And it's not the first time it's been mentioned in the book of Acts. 
Peter in his sermon, right, remember when after the, the, the lame man was healed and, and the, the people gather in the portico and they sort of like lose their minds, like this is amazing how this happened? Well, Peter quotes this verse as well to draw their attention, not to himself, but to Jesus. Now, God could have arranged salvation however he wanted. He's God. But he is also a God of order. And God has, for our benefit, placed signposts all through the history of the world to point us to Jesus Christ. Adam, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Joseph, Moses, David, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel, just to name a few, are all signposts in the Old Testament that point us to Jesus. On the other side of the cross, you have Peter and Paul, James and John, you have now Stephen, all pointing us back to the cross. The signposts are everywhere. My job as your pastor is not to get up here and to entertain you. It is to, pro- it is to point you right back to the cross that you would see Jesus Christ. Amen. Not that I would entertain or, or that would make you feel good about yourself. I mean, I don't, I'm, I don't plan on ways to make you feel miserable when you leave. I, I like when people leave happy. But we all know there's points in our lives when we must be sad over our sin. And the Lord Jesus Christ, if you are one of His, will not let you stay in sin. And blessed are those who mourn over their sin, for we shall be comforted. And so this morning, look to Jesus. Your salvation is not disconnected from all of Scripture. Your salvation is so finely woven into the fabric of the text of the Bible that to try to separate it from the Bible would be impossible. And to claim that you have done so is to claim that your salvation is not true. Because the Word of God alone is true. Your salvation is finely detailed. It is exact. It is absolute. And it is directed all to Jesus Christ. And you are connected to Him inseparably. So that when you stand before God, it is not you that God will look upon and be pleased with. It is the righteous robes of Jesus Christ. For us to stand before God and think that there's something about us that's good. I mean, now you look at the rest of the world that's a mess around us. We might think we're pretty good. God's not going to hold that as your measuring stick, is he? He will put you next to Jesus and you will fall far short from the glory of God. And so we stand in Jesus Christ, who is our propitiation, our salvation, our Savior. And so we are thankful that God has placed these signposts around to keep us anchored in our faith, and our faith faith continually anchored in Jesus Christ. We see the prophet, that is Moses. Look at the precept that Stephen then gives as he talks about the law. He says, this is he, meaning Moses, who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai, and with our fathers, the one who received the living oracles to give to us. What's he talking about, these living oracles? He's talking about the Mosaic Law, that which the Pharisees and scribes and Sanhedrin and Sadducees claimed that they loved so much they obeyed and followed to the T. Now, to say that the Pharisees did not obey the law 
could be a little bit of a stretch because they did obey the law externally. And they, they were, would claim they're so devoted to the law, they actually added to God's law. And they made the law such a burden to carry out, the people were, would, they would avoid the Pharisees. They were fearful of them. And what ended up happening was people were more afraid of Pharisees than they were of the Lord himself. And that is why Jesus went after the Pharisees, because they made their righteousness that which what must be obeyed, not the law, and not the God of the law. But notice what Stephen says here. He doesn't call it the law. He calls it the living oracles of God. He says that, that Moses was on the mountain speaking to the angel of the Lord. Now, typically in, in Scripture, when you see the word angel that's capitalized, it's speaking of the angel of the Lord that is a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ. And so this text has, has actually caused many to think that on the mountain, when Moses is speaking to God, it's the angel of the Lord, meaning the person of Jesus Christ. Now, I... I in all honesty, when I read the Old Testament, I think it's God the Father speaking, and, and we know that certainly God the Father does speak, and if it is Jesus the Son, here's what we know. I and the Father are one. They have one message, they have one purpose, one goal, one message of salvation, one plan. And so if it's Jesus, or it wouldn't be Jesus, it would be the Son of God, or if it's God the Father or the Holy Spirit, it does not matter. Because they're one. And whoever Moses is speaking to, here's what we know. He was speaking with God. And he received the message of God in living oracles. The word living oracles simply means sayings that are alive. They are alive. Stephen is saying that God's word is living and active, using the present tense, which for us means this. God's word is as alive and active today as it was 2,000 years ago. As it was 4,000 years ago. Hebrews 4.12 gets it right when it says, the word of God is living and powerful. You say, well, that's kind of silly to say. It gets it right. It's the Bible. Exactly. I want you to see. It's right. The word of God is living and powerful, active, sharpening a two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, and knows the difference in your, the thoughts of your heart. It knows what you think. It knows what you think is right. It knows what you think is wrong. It knows what is your opinion on everything. The Word of God pierces to convict you. Why is it that people hate God's Word? Because it nails them to the wall. And it shows them that they are either right with God or wrong. Or as Paul says, that you are either alive to God or you are dead to God. Which one are you? The Word of God is living and active, and you have an opinion about what you believe about God, and God's Word knows what that opinion is, and it will either condemn you or it will draw you to Jesus. John tells us in John 1.17 that the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth is given through Jesus Christ. Now, this has caused some to draw the conclusion that the law is no longer necessary. This is something called antinomianism, where there is no need for the law. We're going to look at some heresies in Sunday school this morning, and 
antinomianism is one that was constantly recycled. Well, you don't need a law, just, just believe in Jesus and go live however you want. We have that today, don't we? I call it fire insurance. Just believe on Jesus, get your insurance not to go to hell and live however you want. No, that is not what Scripture teaches. In Galatians 3.19, Paul asks the question, what is the purpose of the law then? What, does, what purpose does it serve? Paul says it's added because of sin. So that you would know what sin is. Until the seed, meaning the Messiah, would come to whom the promise was made, and it was appointed through angels by the hand of a mediator, meaning God gave the law through His Word and, and, and through uh, miraculous ways uh, to Moses on the mountain so that people would know what sin is, what, how to please God, how to obey Him, so they can live life. You know, it's amazing, isn't it, when you live life and you're not in the Word, how easy it is to sin? And how little care you give to your sin? Ever been in that moment where you're like, I haven't read my Bible in X amount of days, and then you're like, I need to get back to it, and I don't really want to. Not because you don't want to read God's Word, but because you know what it's going to tell you. It's like that moment where you have to go and tell your parents that you have done something that you know is wrong, and that they have told you is wrong. I don't really want to be in that conversation right now. We can treat God's Word the same way. But I want you to see the truth that we do not live by the lie that God's law, the law, serves no purpose. The law of Moses is still the eternal, inerrant word of God. Its purpose was to point people to God to show them they couldn't earn salvation on their own. And it is fulfilled in full by Jesus Christ. And so I have stood in this pulpit many times and declared to you that Jesus Christ has died in your place on the cross when you put your faith in Him. You know what else He has done for you? He's lived in your place. Fulfill the law. So all of that reading in Leviticus that you just kind of glaze over when you read it, Christ fulfilled it in its totality, perfectly, rightly, fully on your behalf. That's the God we serve. So intricate is salvation that if you were to seek to divorce it from God's word, you would be condemned. See, we know the cross demands that Christ died, right? You know, also the cross demands of us that we live a life like our Savior. We, we do not look at the cross and say, hey, I can live however I want. No, we look at the cross and we say, Christ has died for me. I shall live for him a life of holiness. Not in some legalistic way of seeking to please God. I please God through faith and faith alone. But that faith moves in me to bring about good works, to grow me more and more like Jesus. So we've seen the prophet and the precept. Look at the perversity now that is done by the Israelites. I'm, I'm going to go through this fairly quickly, so uh, fasten your seatbelts. Beginning in verse 39, Stephen says, These fathers would not obey Moses. But they rejected him. And in their hearts, they turned back to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make us gods to go before us. As for this Moses who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we don't even know what's happened to him. And they made a calf in those days, offered sacrifices to the idols, and rejoiced in the works of their own hands. Then God turned and gave them up to worship the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets. 
Did you offer me slaughtered animals and sacrifices during 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You also took up the tabernacle of Molech and the star of your god, Remphan, images which you made to worship, and I will carry you away beyond Babylon. So with all that was done right in the wilderness, wickedness also prevailed. If you've ever read the account of Moses leading Israel out of Egypt from the the time the, the Red Sea is crossed, I think you get maybe a week before they start turning on Moses and saying, oh, you brought us out here to die, you mean old man. And God, every single time, is gracious and kind and merciful, gives them water out of a rock, gives them food like snow on the ground brings quail to just walk into their camp. Doesn't run away when they catch them. I mean, you ever try to catch a chicken? They don't want to be caught. But a quail is smaller than a chicken, and it just, hey, I'm your dinner. Come on over and get me. This is the God they served, and yet they still want to complain and whine. I mean, I understand why Moses hit the rock the second time. It was wrong, it was sin, but I, I understand it at least. But the, what Stephen says is these men rejected Moses. They pushed him away. And in their hearts they turned back to Egypt. Oh, they're in the wilderness, and they're eating the manna, and they're drinking the water, but in their heart they'd rather be back in slavery in Egypt. Because there they had steak and mashed potatoes. That's the perversity of their hearts. But what's worse is that when their rejection was at its peak, they turned to Aaron when Moses was on the mountain and they said, make us a God. Because we don't know what happened to this Moses. Out of sight, out of mind. And so many people live that way. When I'm in church, I'm a good old boy. When I'm out of church... It's my way. Because all of that stuff is out of sight, out of mind. That is not the Christian life. And if that is how we are living, we are not pleasing God. They make this golden calf and they worship it. Exodus 32.6 says, They rose early on the next day. They offered burnt offerings to this calf. They brought peace offerings to the calf. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. That is Moses' way of saying that they enjoyed themselves physically in an inappropriate way. They, not only did they worship this idol, they went all in. Not everybody, but enough of them that it was a real problem. Now, Stephen uses the word rejoice, which means they're celebrating an occasion. That's an undeniable historical fact, to the point where no one will deny this took place, not even the Sanhedrin. But what Stephen will do, and we'll see this next week, is he draws the line between the rebellious Israelites to the Sanhedrin. And he is saying, you are just like your fathers who rejected Moses in the wilderness, who worshipped the golden calf. This is you. And that's what gets Stephen in trouble. And yet, he's absolutely right to say it. 
What's the response? God gave them up. He gave them exactly what they wanted. Sometimes getting exactly what you wanted is the absolute worst possible scenario because it's not blessing, it's judgment. Romans 1.28 tells us that if God gives us up to our passions and fleshly desires, that's judgment. Our country is in the midst of judgment because they're pushing to get exactly what they want. And so we need to be voices of reason and righteousness to proclaim to our country, this is not what you want. Because if you get what you want in this regard of all your fleshly passions and desires, it will lead you to destruction. There are so few voices in our world like speaking like that, though. Amos 5, 25 and 27 is quoted by Stephen here, where he says, You took up the tabernacle of Molech and the star of your god, Renphan, images you made to worship, and God promised you would carry them away to Babylon. Molech was an Ammonite god. Now the word Molech is, is likely a Hebrew word. It was not the word that the Ammonites used or the Canaanites used to worship this god. Molech is a Hebrew word, and it means human sacrifice. That's what it means. And the humans that they would sacrifice were their children. And the way you sacrificed the Molech was you'd burn your children alive. Do you see where I am going this morning? We still fall down at the altar of Molech in America as we offer up our babies for a life of convenience. And they will, they will stand there and they will tell you, no, we need to offer abortion because we want to, we care for the reproductive rights of a woman and we care for uh, her life and we care, you know, what happens if she's raped or if there's incest and all of that. Uh, they have numbers to prove all of those argumentations are false. Do you know how many abortions are, are performed for those reasons? Less than 1%. Less than 1%. 99% of your abortions are for convenience so that we can live the sexual life we want to live. This is not about what they say it's about. We serve the God of Molech in America. And so when you go to the polls, let's pray that if America will not serve God of Scripture, at least let's not serve the God of Molech. And we pray that God would open up hearts and eyes, that they would see Jesus Christ as the only way for salvation. Now, Remphan, or Rephan, if you want to call him that, as he is called in, in Amos, that's the equivalent of the Roman god Saturn. And the reason why uh, it is mentioned with a star is because Saturn, when it appears in the night sky, looks like a star. And it comes and goes depending on the season. And so when that star would appear, then this, the worship of Saturn would, would really pick up. Now, horoscopes still play a, a sad part in this country, don't they? They're in, the, they're in every newspaper in America. And people will look at them and they'll say, this is silly, this is weird, this is goofy. You know, they're still there. And they're still influencing people. And we're still tolerating it. And the more you tolerate something, guess what? the more it becomes accepted. 
more accept, more you accept something, the more serious it becomes. And the devil does not care if you accept horoscopes. The devil only cares that you do not submit to God. And if a horoscope will keep you from submitting to God, then so be it, he'll use it. Again, the God of Ramphan still in America. There's not much new. It's just recycled. We're still doing the same things. And so Stephen emphasizes idolatry to bring home the point in verses 51 to 53. We'll see that next week. The consecration of David is seen next where with the temple. And David desired to build a house for God as the, the temple, the tabernacle was in the wilderness for all of these years. And David is building his house. <laughs> he realizes, I have this beautiful house and God has a tent. This should not be. And he desires to build God a house. He goes to the prophet Nathan and says, hey, I want to build God a house. And the prophet Nathan says, hey, this seems like a good idea. Go ahead and do it. The Lord's with you. And then God shows up to Nathan and says, uh, I'm not with David. Go tell him not to do that. And Nathan has to go back to David and say, God actually said you're a man of war. You, you can't build a house. But that's David's desire, that God would have a house as well. Why does Stephen include the tabernacle and the house of worship in the, in the temple? Here's why. Because the Sanhedrin has accused him of offending that which is truly of God, the tabernacle or the temple. And so he's going to go back and he's going to say, look at the desires of these men. This is my desire. You say, this is your desire. Well, this is my desire. And Stephen will basically say, the difference between you and me is I actually do what God commanded. That's what he is saying in this sermon. Moses is faithful exactly to do exactly to, to bring the tabernacle about in the exact pattern that God commanded. Uh, the, the, uh, the tent of worship would point people to God. It was where uh, it was to be worshipped. That's the tent of worship. That's the tabernacle, the tent of worship. But with that tent of worship... David comes along, and he's king. And the promised land was, was given to Israel through, to Abraham, through Abraham. And then they go through 400 years of slavery in Egypt. They're led out by Moses. They come to the doorstep of the promised land. Moses dies. Joshua takes over. Joshua leads them into the land, but does not finish clearing it out. And from the beginning of Joshua's ministry of clearing out the land, the land is not clear until David takes the throne. This is several hundred years later. It is not until David clears the land of the Philistines that Israel truly belongs to Israel. And so David is the one who is clearing the land. Why is it that David would then turn around and desire to build this tent? So the triumph of David is in the fact that he found favor with God. That's the triumph. It's not in him killing the, killing the, the giant. That's not him. That's not the triumph. The, the triumph is not him in, in, in becoming king, who's a shepherd boy. That's not the triumph. What's a triumph? God had favor on him. Your triumph is not what you do. It's not who you are. Your triumph is in Christ. That God would have favor on you. 
And there is no reason at all why he should. All because of his grace. And this man stands before you recognizing there's nothing in him that God should ever have favor on him. It's because of God's grace. That's my triumph. That's your triumph. And if you are here this morning and you are doubting whether or not you serve this God, you can know for certain if you are covered by his grace. He offers it to you freely as he's offered it to me and to those in this room freely. If you need to know how you can have salvation through Jesus Christ and be also in his favor, please see myself after service. See Pastor Chris or one of our elders. We would love to show you from Scripture how you can be saved. See, what I want you to see is we have buildings and our triumph is not in having this really nice building that we come together and, and gather in. Our triumph is the fact that Christ has saved us from our sin. See, one day, this building will be turned to rubble like all the others. When the earth is renewed, this building of brick will no longer stand. And something far better will take its place. See, we're not legalists who want to beautify the outside, and on the inside, we're dead men's bones. We're Christians. That which is inside gives life to the outside. And so the building is a gift from God to meet and to serve and to worship. But the building is not the church. The people are the church. All because we're under God's grace. Finally, we see the throne of God as Stephen declares in verse 48 through 50. The Most High does not live in temples made with hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What house will you build for me, says the Lord, or what place of, of my rest? Has my hand not made all these things? Here's why Stephen ends the sermon in this, this spot. He wants to take their eyes off of the dirt where the temple was and up to glory where God lives. It's not about a place. It's about the person. And Stephen wants to draw their minds to the fact that God does not live in the temple. He put his presence there in the Old Testament. But as far as his presence now, it is through the Holy Spirit in his people. And Stephen is pointing this out to them. In this whole section, here is what he is saying. Those who did not defile the holy place with words certainly did it with their actions of idol worship. And your legalism is idol worship, Stephen is telling them. So you think that my teaching is defiling the temple? What about your actions? And Jesus has said of the same men, these are people who honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And that is why Stephen will go into, you are just like your fathers. Now this is a quote from Isaiah 66, 1, heaven is my throne, earth is my footstool. What house will you build for me, says the Lord, or what is a place of my rest? Heaven is where God reigns over all the earth, over all the universe. It's a realm that you and I cannot access in our current state. 
But at our death, God graduates us to heaven if we are in Christ. And only if we are in Christ. And in that moment, your faith will be sight. Your scars will be healed. Your questions will be answered. And your joy will be full. And I want to draw your eyes to this God this morning as we close because just as Stephen tells the Sanhedrin that the temple that they are so fixated on <laughs> is, is not leading them to true worship but is actually causing them to miss the truth of God's Son, we can do the exact same thing. We can get so focused on what we do at church and I don't like this church's music and I don't like this church's programs and they don't have this for me. and they don't, It's not about you. It's not about me. It's about Christ. And so we certainly want to do things that help our people and, and meet people where they are, but we will do things biblically to lift high the name of Jesus. We do the same things. The point of this sermon this, this morning was to show you that you and I are no different from those who lived in the first century, and those in the first century are no different than us. The same problems existed, and the same God is on the throne. Christian, rest easy. Whatever happens on Tuesday, rest easy. He has not only foreseen it, he's planned it, and he will deal with it. Those who rebel against him, he will deal with them if they do not repent. So as we close, consider the theme of the gospel running all through Scripture. Abraham and Sarah were dead to the reality of having children, yet they're the father. He's the father of, Ab of, of Israel. Having a baby at 100 years old, Sarah's 90 God chooses to start his chosen generation through Abraham. Why? Because it was impossible any other way, and God is making sure the world knows this is my work and my plan. No one could do this. Moses is born at exactly the wrong time. We've said this last week. When Pharaoh was seeking out the beautiful baby boys to kill them, and yet God used him, spared him. And not only was he born at the wrong time, he was raised in the wrong house. And Pharaoh's house, with all of the paganism and all of the lies and all of the, the errors and heresies, and God spared Moses. And, and some of us are, are sitting here this morning thinking, I'm, I've got the wrong past, I've got the wrong history, I've got the wrong problems, I've got... You don't have the wrong anything if the Lord chooses to use you. Now certainly there are qualifications that we need to make. God has given those in His Word, but if God chooses to use you, He's going to use you. And I want to get your eyes off of the dirt and raise them up to the throne of God in glory. As we rest here this morning and we rest on the sovereign God of the universe, what happens on this earth, it will be dealt with either in the blood of Jesus or at the throne of God where he judges the earth. And so, dear Christian, rest easy. My, my concern is that we know Jesus Christ as the true deliverer, not only of Israel, but as our, of our souls. Is Jesus Christ your Savior? Do you know my Jesus? If you know a Jesus who is out there to, to, to give you happiness and to, and, and to give you all of your desires, you are not serving Jesus of the Bible. 
I know there's a teaching of that Jesus out there, and I will simply tell you that's a wrong teaching. You need to seek out Jesus Christ in Scripture. Know that you can know you're saved. And so this morning, if you are here and you've been attacked in so many different ways in your heart and your belief, or or you're under conviction and you just need to know, am I a Christian? Altar's open this morning. It's always open. You can come forward. You can tell them. But let me just remind you, you can sit right where you are and you can have a meeting with the Lord. If you need help working through the issues, I'm here for you. Pick up your phone. Call me. Meet me today. See Pastor Chris. See one of our elders. See a good friend who you think can help you through it. You are not alone. And that's the beauty of the church. So, beloved, as we close, let's remember to get our eyes off of the dirt and up into glory where God is reigning on his throne. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the joy of knowing you and and hearing your word. And I ask that you would send your word forth and heal your people this morning, that we would be obedient to it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.